Let's open up our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We've had one session in this chapter already. Let's continue and aim to finish. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's begin reading at verse 9. And in advance, I want you to notice all of the places where these verses say, glory or glorious. Verse 9, for if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect, because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not steadily, could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit, is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. The glory of God. How glorious is Jesus? Do you see it? Over and over, we're reminded in this section that God is brilliant, that he has great splendor, that he is marvelous, that he is to be magnified. The glory of God stands out to me. Whether you choose to recognize it or not, it's true. Nobody compares to him in his majesty, in his glory, and in his brilliance. His glories fill the heavens. He projects his glory through his people. In him, there's no darkness. There's no shadow. He is light. Every good thing comes from him. He is perfection personified. This passage does speak to us a lot about the results of God's glory and how we're to respond to God's glory. But here at the very start, let's be reminded, let's not get caught up so much in how God reveals his glory. Let's not get so caught up in how we're transformed by his glory before we stop and realize that God is glorious. He is glorious way before he transforms us. He is glorious even if you are not transformed. If you were to stay in your sins and stay rebellious against the Lord, his glory is unsurpassed. Sometimes we get onto our response and we get onto the way God reveals his glory, and those are very important. They're in the scriptures. And we don't stop and just consider the glory of God. We just have glimpses right now of the glory of God. We don't see him and know him in his full glory. But we're learning through this passage that the veil is lifted and that we get to see God's glory, so much more than it was seen under the old covenant. Yes, we're transformed, but the Lord is glorious 
way before all of that. He is light. Nobody compares to him. Have you noticed so much in the church today, especially in the United States, it's about us instead of about the giver. Our Christianity, our faith, we turn it into something that's me-centered. And that's not what the Bible shows us. We're here witnessing and testifying to the Everything he initiates is pure. Jesus is just beaming with this grace, with this glory. So it's not just, what do I get out of the glory? Please allow yourself to rightly be amazed. In heaven, before the throne, if you are to experience, if you're to be there by faith in Jesus Christ, if you are there before the throne, do you think in seeing the glory of God and experiencing and feeling the, the glory of God, are you going to be saying, what's in it for me? <laughs> no. We're just going to be in awe, astounded. Wow. Lord, how will we respond to that? We're, we're not going to be standing there saying, okay, that was great, God. Now, how do, how do I get a piece of that glory? No. Amazement, wonder, worship. Be astounded today. You're standing on holy ground, realizing that you're in the presence of our perfect God. Let's consider some truths in these scriptures that greatly affect our lives. First of all, God's glory is unveiled in the new covenants. We're considering the new covenant and how it is unfolded for us in the scriptures, and we learned a lot about that in our last session, but let's continue. The apostle writes, and he's referring to the book of Exodus, centering around chapter 34. Moses had been on the mountain. And reading through that passage, the scriptures tell us that he was there for a total on the mountain of 80 days fasting, that the Lord supernaturally strengthened him because no man's going to live through that unless he has the Lord sustaining him. He's on the mountain, two different stints on the mountain for 40 days at a time. He's on his second set of tablets etched with the law of the Lord, and he comes down that second time and his face is glowing with the glory of God. He has been in the presence of God. And the scriptures tell us that his skin, that his shell was shining forth with God's word. And the people's response is understandable. They were afraid. They saw Moses coming down from the mountain. The last time it wasn't good. They were in their rebellion. And now they see the glory of God on the face of this judge and he begins to teach them. It tells us in Exodus that he wore this veil over his face, but it doesn't really tell us why he wore the veil. Here, the word tells us why, because he didn't want the people to see that the glory was fading, that the glory was diminishing from his face. You're there listening to the teacher. Hey, is his face as shiny as it was last week? No, I don't think it is. I... I don't know. I think we're just getting used to it, honey. I think he's just as shiny as he was. He wore this veil so the people wouldn't see the fading glory, speaking of the old covenant, which has now passed away. On that mountain, Moses recognized that all of Israel should be destroyed because of their sins. This is not a comfortable truth, but it's a truth nonetheless. God should destroy us because of our sins. And you say, oh, that's not right. Yes, it is. We're a sinful people. 
And we deserve, I hope that you don't pray, oh Lord, give me what I deserve. We deserve to be destroyed. But Moses also realized on that mountain, as he asked for mercy, that God was and is a God who is extending mercy in spite of our depravity, in spite of our rejection of him. He calls to us, and he received the law, he received the Ten Commandments, and then he also received the sacrificial system, speaking of the Old Covenant. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. To show Israel that unless there's blood shed, sin cannot be paid for. Blood is the cost. Now this veil that he speaks of hid the fading glory of the Old Covenant. And Paul writes here that there are still those who cannot see that the Old Covenant is obsolete. They still cannot see that it is in the past, that the glory has faded. They're trying to go back to it. That glory, even though it was indeed glorious, has been replaced, and there are those that still don't get it. Yes, today we're not near as steeped as the Judaizers were in trying to come and, and make Christians into practicing Jews. But aren't there so many, and it's even the whispers of the enemy, that believe that being right with God is about your works. It's about whether you're a good person or not. And here the Bible speaks over and over again. That's the part of the veil. And that veil needs to be removed so that we can rightly see that has faded. It was never going to save. It was never meant to save. It was meant to show us that we couldn't keep it. Now, some have suggested that what we read last week about the letter that kills, that that letter is the word of God in its totality. That's not true. The letter that kills is the old covenant. The letter that kills, as it is, was called previously in the chapter, the ministry of death, is the law. Yes, the law given to Moses is a part of the word of God, but isn't there so much more in the scriptures? Yes, there is the law. There's so much more aside from the law that the Lord reveals to us in his word, even in the Old Testament. Yes, the sacrificial system is in the word of God, but those two things are not equal to each other. It's somewhat confusing because the same word for covenant is, is used for test, testament many times. So we can look at this at the surface level and say, the Old Testament has passed away, thinking of the books of the Old Testament. That's not what the word of God is saying. It's saying that the old covenant has been replaced, as we learned in the book of Hebrews, that it's now obsolete because Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has instituted the new covenant. So let us not think, oh, the word of God is, has passed away, the Old Testament has passed away. Or let us not think that this passage is, thinking about, is speaking about, I should say, that the word of God kills but the Spirit gives life. It is true that the Word of God is designed to be taught through the power of the Spirit. But there are those who would say, oh, that, that's talking about God's Word. No, it's talking about the Old Covenant, which is a section of God's Word. Even the Old Testament, many, many times, and we read some passages prior, emphasize the Holy Spirit and His power over and over again. It's true of the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. I'm reminded of Zechariah, 4, 6, the second half of the verse that says, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. I'm reminded of what the 
prophet said when he wrote, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Strikes me each time, because we're surprised for some reason, that in the spring there's a lot of grass. And our conversations are a lot about grass and about weed eating. and cut. It's, it's almost like we're like, oh, I've got to get out there and get my grass, right? I, I have a weed eater. I've got both. Of, I'm not speaking against weeding, but it's almost like it's a tragedy. It's, oh, no, we got to get the weeds down, right? That stuff's going to fade away, right? The word of the Lord stands forever. And do you know you can still cut it after it's brown? It's still, it still comes down after it's brown, and it doesn't come back as quickly, right? I got to cut it while it's green. It's, it's fading away, right? It's, it's, it's passing away, but the word of the Lord is not cut down. It stands. It endures forever. Don't let anybody turn passages into this, like, well, the Bible, it, it kills in, in, unless it has the Spirit. This, the Spirit wrote the Scriptures. The Spirit inspired the Scriptures. Don't let that separation happen in your mind. It's not right. The Spirit of the Lord speaks to us through His Holy Word. Now, the Old Covenant has been replaced Those by the new covenant, that sacrificial system, that law that was and is meant for us to reflect upon who we are and cause us to see our sin. The law did not transform. A list of rules, no matter how good the list of rules is, cannot change you from the inside out. That's been proven over and over again. As a parent, as a grandparent, as an employer, do you go through this? You just want people to think. And you, you say to yourself, do I need to make them a list? And then you make them a list, and there's something, on, something little on the list that's left out because the list can't make them change on the inside and desire, right? I think of how many lists we would need just to make our household run effectively. The list would be all over all the walls and it still wouldn't change how we're just supposed to be respectful and loving and think ahead. Laws don't change us in and of themselves. Now they show us and they remind us of what we need to do, but this passage is talking about transformation because of the glory of God. The old covenant did not transform. I think of what it says in Exodus it was only skin deep. And the scriptures emphasize that the glory of God on Moses was just his skin. It wasn't the heart. It wasn't from the inside out as the new covenant is instituted by the death and resurrection of our Lord. It says this in verse 10, indeed, in this case, what, what once had glory has come to have no glory, speaking of the old covenant, at all, because of the glory that surpasses it. Now we have the, the new covenant. And we spoke of those things that, that are in the new covenant prior, but it's surpassed it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, then there was a lot of glory in the old covenant, much more will that, will what is permanent have glory. Sorry, I can't read today. Can't read most days. The old covenant glory was surpassed. It was transient in nature, passing away compared to what? The permanent new covenant that the Lord has made with his people. Now notice in verse 12, since we have such a great hope, we are very bold. Now because the new covenant is permanent, 
Paul and his co-laborers were very bold. They were very clear in their instruction. They weren't concealing. There was a lot that was concealed in the old covenant that was hidden, that was mysterious. But he says, we have this hope. We're proclaiming the new covenant, and we're very bold about it. It says this in the original King James Version. It reads this way, seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. Some people really enjoy complicated speech, and I guess there's a time and there's a place for it. But I love that the word of God can be understood by anyone because that illustrates that God is after everyone, that we don't have to reach a certain level of intellect, although we want to excel in our minds and, and, and our knowledge, but we don't, it's plain speech. It's something that we can understand. It's something that we can believe in, someone that we can believe in. He says, we speak very plainly, very openly. Now, was Paul an educated man? Very educated. But he chose to speak in a very bold, matter-of-fact, straightforward manner because the new covenant is just that clear. And there's so much clarity in the word of God. That's what he held on to. I think of what it says in 1 Corinthians back in the first chapter of, of that book, that the Lord uses foolish things to confound the wise. That the Lord uses the weak to shame the mighty. Like those who think they're really strong and those who think they're really smart, the Lord comes along and with clear, straightforward truth puts them to shame. And then at the end of that passage, or near the end of it, it says that no flesh should glory, that no person should glory in themselves, but that the glory, there we are again, the glory of God, the glory should go to God alone. So he says, we speak with great plainness of speech. Now Paul's opponents complicated that which should have been simple. The Judaizers, those who were attempting to pull Christians back into practicing the old covenant, to simply put it, they were coming and they were undermining the work in Corinth, the work in the region of Galatia, and they prided themselves in being very intellectual, being very analytical. And the word here says, referring to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Lord is going to use that which they consider to be foolish to confound them. But they infiltrated the church to pull people away after themselves. That's one of the trademarks of those who are trying to spread the doctrines of men, not the doctrines of God. They often don't go out into the world where there are the unbelieving. They come into the church and like, wait, let me win your ear. Let me get you off on this tangent. That's dangerous. It's been in the church forever. Let's stay the course. Let's stick to God's word and what he clearly says to us. Let's not read beyond it. Let's speak plainly, right? Now, maybe that hurts your pride a little bit. You're like, no, I'm smart. I'm really educated. Well, guess what? The Lord wants to wound my pride. In fact, he wants to decimate it so that I know it's not about my intellect, it's not about my philosophy, it's not about my psychology, it's about the truth of his word that stands forever. If it's there, stands, we hold on to it. 13, I'll reread, says, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze 
at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, they only, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Look, in Jesus, through Christ, that's the only way that the veil is lifted. That's the only way that we can know the glory of God. If it's not in Jesus, if it's not through Jesus, there's no enlightenment. That phrase so many times, in Christ, all the difference in the world. Are you standing in Jesus? Are you, is it through him that the veil has been removed? Because it cannot be removed any other way but through Christ. So God's glory unveiled in the new covenant. Point number two, God's glory is revealed in repentance. Did you notice verse 15 and 16? That there's a veil lying over some people's hearts. Their understanding, and hearts even speaks of desires. That there's a veil that's causing them not to see. But then it says in 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. When there is a change of mind that leads to a change of, of action, and a person turns to the Lord, then the veil is lifted, and then there is freedom. So point number two, God's glory is revealed in repentance. Do you want the veil removed? Do you want to see the glory of God? Do you want to know God? Do you want to receive Jesus Christ as Lord? That happens through repentance, through us turning our lives away from sin and towards the Savior. I hear teachers at times say, well, repentance was the message of John the Baptist. We don't preach repentance anymore. Well, then why in the book of Revelation, multiple times, does Jesus tell the church to repent? Well, because, yes, we need that initial repentance, which leads to salvation. But have we gotten to the place where we really think, well, I've already repented. I don't need to repent again. I see God just as clearly as I, I, I need to see him on this side of heaven. No. If you look at Revelation 2.5, we're told, repent and do the first works. That's to the church of Ephesus. Revelation 2.16, repent or else. That's written to Pergamos. Revelation 3.3, hold fast and repent, written to the church at Sardis. So repentance is the way the glory of God is revealed. Initially, and it is necessary for us to live lives that are turned towards the Lord, not turned aside towards to our sin and our affections that are not according to the word of God. The veil is removed. When that veil is lifted, oh, how glorious. I speak of the glory of God. When we turn away from who we are, from pursuing living for ourselves and chasing after sin, and we turn to the Lord and we call him that, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, there is an unveiling. But conversely, it's true that unbelief brings lack of revelation. And unbelief will keep you from the glory of God. Choose to put your faith in Jesus. Make that decision to call upon him as Lord. 
and then continue in that life of repentance, that his glory would be revealed to you. You see, his glory is the game changer. When you see the glory of God, you will not stay the same. When you absorb the glory of God, your life will change. My life changes. We're away from the glory of God. We don't see his holiness, his brilliance, his splendor. He is the changer in us. I'm going to now read from Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, where it says, Beware, brethren, lest there be any of you, in any of you, an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. That's a warning to us as Christians. Don't go back and have a hard heart again. Don't be tricked by sin, the deceitfulness of sin. Brothers, that's who it's written to, beware brethren, don't depart from the living God. Don't let the heart of unbelief begin to grow in you again. Now there's a way of thinking that says, since you're a child of God, there will always be progress. There will always be advancement. There will always be freedom. There will always be greater revelation of Jesus. But that doesn't take into account the warnings of Scripture. That it is still true that for us, that unbelief brings regression. Unbelief pulls us back. The the deceitfulness of sin pulls us away. It is an inverse relationship. The more we have the deceitfulness of sin in our lives, the more it takes away our faith. The more faith we have, the less we believe in the trickery of sin. Whenever we, and I say we, because it's written to brethren, this passage from Hebrews 3, whenever we begin to live and believe in the trickery of sin, we're going to have less faith. Are you with me? When we start to desire more and more the things of the flesh, our faith in God is going to shrink. And when our faith grows, our desire for the deceitfulness of sin shrinks. So we're getting this warning, God's glory revealed in repentance, both for justification and for sanctification. Verse 18, I'll read that. And we all with unveiled face. So Paul is writing to those who have repented, for those whose lives are turned towards the Lord. We have this unveiled face. There's nothing between us and the Lord anymore. Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Let's look quickly at something very important, even though we won't talk about it at length. Did you notice that in verse 17 and at the end of verse 18, that the apostle is giving us insight into the unified work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit? Yes, two distinct persons, but still the same essence. The Son and the Spirit are fully united in their work, in their mission. Speaking of our Lord Jesus, speaking of the Holy Spirit who he sent as the comforter to convict the world of sin, and they're working together 
Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Here we learn the work of the Spirit and the work of Jesus together, the same essence, although two distinct persons. And we see clearly that God's glory transforms us for our final point, that the glory of God is unveiled in the new covenant and that the glory of God is revealed in repentance, but that God's glory changes us from the inside out. It's not just skin deep, the way that Moses' glowing was just a skin deep. It's literally from the core of who we are out to how we live out of our lives. It's from our hearts. It's from the inside out, that change. You see, the law only gives you a dressed up sinner. That's all it does. We spend a lot of our time, some of us more than others, trying to make the outside look better than we really are. That's a good picture of all the law can do. I know how I really look. I see that in the morning. I see that when I'm not dolled up, for lack of a better way to put it. But I've got to try to fix it, on the outside at least. That's superficial work. But here, the glory of God transforms us. Metamorphosis changes us from the inside out. And Paul writes, and we all, making it clear, all of the repentant are being transformed into the image. And look what it says. One degree, to one degree or another, one degree at a time, you're seeing his glory and he is changing you. I'm sorry to say that in listening to some teachers this week on this subject, they said, everybody in this room is being transformed. I don't even know if some of you are saved or not. I don't make that assumption, right? If you have repented of your sins, and you're following Jesus, he is transforming you. That's what I see here in the word of God. We have this beholding of the glory of God, and we're being transformed into the same image. You see it there in 18. That means the image of Jesus. We're being changed into the likeness of Christ, and it doesn't happen all at once. We know this, practically speaking, but here, from one degree of glory to another, from glory to glory, He's changing me, his likeness into his image. He's changing you, changed into the, the picture of Christ, to the essence of Christ. Beware of a way of thinking that says, well, that's kind of advanced Christianity. That's, that's like if you're really into Jesus, that he's going to actually start changing the way you think, the way you treat people, what you listen to, what you watch, that, that's like really extreme. You know, I believe in God, and man, I want to go to heaven, and I know I'm going there, but this whole thing where, where God's word is supposed to actually change me, that by his spirit he's supposed to move in me, that's just for the, the like ranking church people. That's for like the big shots. I, I'm not a big shot. Actually, that being transformed is your sanctification. There's no Christianity without sanctification. If you just want to say, I, I want to be justified. I want to be right with God, but I don't want him to change me. That is, that is of great error. The Lord says here, into the image of his son, one degree at a time. I don't have patience for myself. One degree at a time. I don't have patience for you one degree at a time. 
I just want to turn the dial, right? I just want to get all the degrees passed up. And do we realize, yes, the glory of God is magnificent. And when we see him, we will be like him, right? In heaven. All of us perfect. I can't wait for you to be perfect. (laughs) Heaven's going to be great, right? But are we seeing what the word of God says? That yes, we're living with this unveiled face, but we are being transformed one degree at a time. Uh, And that's the direction we're headed, to be more and more like Jesus. Apply the fruit of the Spirit, that long-suffering, that patience. Yes, to yourself, but to others. Because he is changing those believers around you. And maybe something that you learned years ago, they're still struggling with, and the opposite may be true. Well, haven't they learned that yet? Well, there's some things I certainly haven't learned yet. There's some growth that I need in my life, a lot of it, to be like Jesus. But it's that transforming process. To quote William MacDonald, he said, here in a word is the secret of Christian holiness, occupation with Christ. Not by occupation with self, that only brings defeat. Not by occupation with others, that brings disappointment. But occupation with the glory of God in that we become more and more like him. Occupied with self, now I'm disappointed. Occupied with, with others, disappointed again. Defeated again. But occupation with the glory of God. Are you and I seeing clearly that it is God's glory that transforms us? It's simple to say that I don't believe in the Old Covenant anymore. I know the law can't change me. And then the striving instead of that occupation. Then then the the attempt to work instead of in the power of self instead of in the liberty of the Spirit. Have you known that freedom that we sang about this morning? Have you known that liberty of the Holy Spirit where you are being transformed into the image of Jesus? Christian, if you're honest, you've known both. You've known the struggle to change yourself and you've known the freedom of liberty that the Spirit brings. I hope that you understand that. It's not just something intellectual. It's something that comes through that repentance towards God. There's a passage in Acts that speaks of Stephen and many times in reading it, I've thought to myself, how did he love the way that he loved? How did he do what he did? Stephen was the first martyr in church history. He died for his faith. He preached, he, he shared, he gave of the Lord. But that record in Acts 7 of him being killed for his faith is so powerful. And I'm going to skip to the end of it because the part that always amazes me is when he says, when he prays for God to not hold it against them. He, He prays for those who are killing him and says, do not lay this sin to their charge. Don't hold it against them. As he's being crushed with stones, as he's being put to death for the cause of Christ, he displays this And I know he's not faking it. It's recorded in the word of God. He's given his life and he prays for those 
that are currently killing him. That kind of transformation is amazing to me. I read that and I say, how could he say that? How could he do that? How could he mean that? I'm so full of vengeance. I'm so vindictive. And I know that the wrath of of man doesn't accomplish the righteousness of God, but look at him in that state where he was willing to give his life and then to have that kind of transformed heart for the very people who were putting him to death. How did that happen? So then I started backing up in, in Acts 7, and I was reminded, and I'll read to you a bit, Acts seven fifty four. When they heard these things, speaking of his persecutors, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth, But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Stephen was transformed because he saw the glory of God. He got a glimpse of heaven. And that transformed him. I'm not saying he wasn't a transformed man before, but God gave him what he needed to lay down his life in a way that was Christ-like. It was the glory of God. It was him seeing Jesus that transformed him, that changed him, that enabled him to say, don't hold this against them. Don't hold this to their account. That was because he knew of the glory of Jesus. For me and for you, is it salvation or is it rejection? Is it growth or regression? Is there repentance? Has the veil been lifted? Are you living in that state so that the glory of God is transforming you? That's the challenge that I bring to myself and I bring to the church. If we're living in the glory of God, it's not just going to be about kumbaya, I love these songs, and they sound so cool. I I like good songs too. But songs in themselves aren't going to change you. It's not going to change me. Good music doesn't change us. The glory of God changes us. That's how we're transformed. Lord, forgive me for looking other places because I do desire to be different, Lord, but when I look anywhere else but your glory, it's, it's the wrong source. I thank you for what you gave us, what you handed to us, what you instituted when you laid down your life for this beautiful covenant of of us being changed from the inside out, to have your law written on our hearts, not just etched in some tablets, for you to change our desires, for you to keep us from the deceitfulness of sin. Thank you, Jesus, for sending the Spirit. Spirit, thank you for purifying us. We come and we, and we know that our affections and we know that our desires are to be set on you. Give us new desires where we need them, Lord. We call out to you in Jesus' name. Amen.